Hi, I'm Adrian Lilly, and this is Pod Academy. For this episode, I talked to Michael Zeman about his recent publication called The Digital Tailspin, 10 Rules for the Internet After Snowden, which he published in 2015 at the Institute of Networked Cultures. You can find a digital copy of the work at networkcultures.org, or there is a link available at the Pod Academy website. Michael's views on transparency and privacy online are in some ways a radical departure from what is often heard in the mainstream media commentators. He dreams of a world where information found online can't cost someone their job or lead to public shaming and embarrassment. And in this way, he argues for a kind of total transparency while also acknowledging many of the social and systematic problems that prevent this kind of free-flowing information. The digital tailspin is set up as a sort of manual consisting of 10 rules for how to understand the internet, privacy, and the lack of control of information online. In other words, there are guidelines for how to deal with the digital tailspin. The book is full of examples and analysis of what is happening in this new digital world, or what Michael refers to as the new game. He discusses everything from whistleblowers to flash mobs to copyright. Michael builds his ideas on the work of many other theorists, People from statistician and author Nicholas Nassim Taleb to digital activist Eli Pariser. We talked about the role of the platform provider, what it means to be hospitable online, and some of the factors that are challenging the way that we have traditionally understood information. But first, here's Michael talking a little bit about his background. My name is um, Michael, Michael Seemann. Um, last year, I... I made a book about all my theories and theses about the control verlust and how it changed the world. It's is called the, uh, Das neue Spiel, Strategien für die Welt nach dem digitalen Kontrollverlust. It's the German title. And uh, I also published an English version of the second part of the book uh, as a standalone publication. And this is what we are supposed to talk about, the digital tailspin, 10 rules for the internet after Snowden. We move now to a more detailed look at the role of the platform. Platforms, or the social media sites that mediate our interaction with both each other and other entities online, play an undeniably important role in how we navigate and ultimately interpret what happens online. Consider the difference between how you interpret information that comes to you through a private email versus a tweet or even a phone call. The digital tailspin recognizes the platform as filling a role that has been traditionally filled by the state. That is, they act as a police or governing body to regulate our interactions with each other, with rules or terms and conditions and privacy policies that are set up both as a way to aid the company, such as granting themselves the right to gather and monetize the personal data of its users, and in response to user problems in dealing with each other. Consider, for example, Facebook's policies on blocking and reporting users who abuse the service or other users, or Google's recent decision to remove results from its U.S. search engine that reveal sexually explicit images that were posted online without the consent of the person pictured. This is an aid for potential victims of revenge porn. While social movements and legal policies do factor into decisions like this, it does show how we find ourselves appealing to the platforms for protections. But this kind of closed protections that we seek from the platforms are, according to the digital tailspin, giving the platform providers more and more control and leading to an increased hegemony online. Michael and I talk some about how he understands the platform's role in dealing with the control lust, what are its responsibilities, how is the state involved, and why he believes it has fallen into this role. 
We also discussed some of the problems and limitations of platforms. In Rule 8, you mentioned that the future of the platforms is determined by the control that we give them. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit, how it is us that's giving them control or how they're gaining it? Yeah, at the end, whenever we, it comes to privacy or to copyright violations and so on, platform providers are now the institutions to enforce these rights or to enforce these things. Everybody is talking about how Facebook is destroying privacy, but uh, the truth is that Facebook just reinvented privacy in a much different way. Privacy in an absolute way is destroyed, uh, no question on that, but it is reinvented in a, uh, in a way that uh, we have privacy now in a way that we didn't have in the, the old game. We now can choose for every information, for every bit of information out there to, to say this guy can see this and this guy can see this and um, on, a, on, a, on a very detailed level. But the downside is that uh, we have no absolute privacy anymore. Uh, we are open to, uh, to the top Mark Zuckerberg can see everything, and uh, so can the NSA and uh, other powerful institutions. And but this seems to be the way uh, we we deal with privacy in a new way. I'm not very happy with the way Facebook or other platforms like Snapchat now or WhatsApp are doing this and uh, defining this because it means that uh, you have you have to trust this confidentiality of the platform providers. And it gives them the power about everything, about uh, everything that uh, we define as private, because uh, they see everything and no one else does. But it's, uh, it seems to be the way the society has choose to deal with the control verlust. So we put these platforms in charge, these centralized platforms in charge, and we ask them to... Um, to deal with our privacy and our data and so on. And then we get very powerful institutions through that. So, yeah, what I dream of is a society where you don't have to force control about data and about everyone else uh, to, uh, to, to protect yourself online and so on. So um, I think a free society is where we don't ask anyone to protect us from each other but we don't are at this point at the moment uh, we have a lot of people who are harassing other people we are we live in a world where some informations about you can cost your job or or uh, anything else and so so we we have to 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 ask someone to protect us from each other and be it the state or in our new world in our new game more and more we ask the, pri uh, the, the, the platform providers. So in a way, it is kind of okayish that these platform providers get all these powers because we need them to, to regulate the people. But in the end, it's our own fault. It's our own inability to deal with each other in a positive way and to, to, to deal with all the informations and all the uh, data flows in a positive way. So this is what I mean when I, when, when I say it is us that is holding us back to all the new powers that are given to us. Um, another thing that comes up a couple times is you have this idea of hospitality mm -hmm. with platforms and data. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, the first thing is uh, that 
uh, when we begin to connect ourselves not only through institutions like we used to in the old game, but to uh, um, connect ourselves directly through technologies or to through platforms like the internet or like Facebook or uh, any anything else, all these sharing economy things and so on, then we we are directly connected to each other. And this means that everything we do has an effect on everyone else on the network. There's this thing called the network effect, that a network is much more valuable for everyone with how, how many other people are taking part of it. So with every, every participant of the network, the value of the network grows. This is basically what the network effect is. And the same is true for everything that we do on this network. The more data we share on a network, uh, the more value everyone else can take part of in the network. Uh, so um, we are kind of infrastructure for each other. So everything we provide, and be it um, data or be it uh, channels for communications and so on, the more the others are free to choose and to make sense of the world and to, to, to gather and to, um, and, and, and to use data. And so this is, um, this is basically what this hospitality means. So it means that there's an ethical dimension on sharing data and, uh, and to make yourself reachable through platforms and through communication ch channels. And this also includes li uh, things like uh, providing a secure communication channel through encryption or something. So you uh, increase the freedom of everyone else when you take part of platforms and networks and uh, share data and so on. This seems to kind of run into conflict with things like the right to be forgotten acts and these sorts of laws yeah, that are popping um, up. Yeah, it definitely does. The right to be forgotten is um, is directly uh, opposing that. It's um, I don't want others to participate on some informations I don't like to be out there. I have um, I can understand this wish, but I think that we have to uh, really consider that the wish of one person decreases the value of the internet for everyone else. So perhaps not in a direct matter that everyone wants to know about this uh, special article where which I don't like, but uh, we, we decrease the potential value of the network. And yeah, and it's not... It's not easy to, to, to make a decision about these different wishes and mechanics. The central issue within the digital tailspin is an idea which, in German, he refers to as the Kontrollverlust, a word which, when directly translated, means loss of control. In English, he calls the concept the digital tailspin. Simplified, it's a way to describe a shift from an old world, where information was more easily controlled, into a new one, where controls over information and privacy are changing in their essential shape and structure. But what is this loss of control, and who is experiencing it? And how are these different groups, anyone from individuals to businesses to governments, dealing with it? I talked to Michael about these questions and many others that are addressed in the work. So I wonder if we could go ahead and start with a little bit more detail, and excuse my horrible pronunciation, about how you define the control for lust. Yeah, the control verlust or the digital tailspin, how I also call it in English, um, is 
uh, basically the the attempt to uh, to refer all the different problems that we are talking about about the internet like business models based on copyright that are not uh, anymore valid and uh, all the concerns about privacy and and so on all these uh, different topics uh, to to refer them to one common cause and this is common cause is, is what i call the control verlust the loss of control about information information streams and and data and uh, this is the main thesis that that all the different topics we are talking about are um, have this common cause and uh, to deal with this common cause we we have to accept the control verlust this is um, this is the basic thesis who is it that you see as losing control? Is it individuals, governments, organizations, everybody? In a special way, we all lose control about data. It is uh, ourselves, um, whenever we complain about privacy issues and so on, on online, um, then it's uh, basically the talk about uh, losing control about data. But it's also, um, also the governments are infected. Um, you have just look at WikiLeaks or later uh, the Snowden revelations. Government has has a lot to do to um, to deal with the control verlust about informations, and um, so every institution is kind of hit by the control verlust. But this doesn't mean that um, everybody loses control about everything, because in other ways uh, the control verlust also means more control. It means more control for the people who deal with the control verlust right and to use data instead of protecting it. Are there any examples of that happening? Yeah, I think um, in the big picture we, c we can see a very huge shift from the old institutions that we used to have in the old game. I just uh, call it the old game, uh, the, the old world, the, the analog world. Um, where we had uh, top-down institutions which which worked with controlling data and, and only could work with controlling data. And uh, now we have uh, these new kind of institutions which are called platforms or uh, platform providers like Google, Facebook, face, uh, and so on, um, which, uh, which became so big because they found a new way to deal with information which is not primarily controlling data in ways of protecting it from others, but in the first place uh, about using data and make use of the data and make use for the users and also to make money about the data. What you think needs to happen is that we should embrace this. And what does that exactly mean, to embrace the, the sort of lack of privacy and the loss of control? Yeah, you can you can say uh, to embrace the control verlust. Embracing means in this way to find strategies to deal with data that um, that uses uh, the the upsides of this of, of this development. And there are upsides of this the development. Uh, to put it in a more economic way, the control verlust means that the cost of data distribution and of communication collapsing. And this is also a good thing for a lot of things like um, to network and to uh, gather and to organize yourself with others and to um, uh, organize uh, also in a political way, also for things like transparency and so on. So there are upsides of this control verlust and um, to, 
uh, find better strategies is to move your strategies more in, uh, more to the uh, to the upsides and to just whine about the downsides. Yeah, perhaps not embrace it, but um, but we should. Um, um, the, the problem with the control verlust is that we expect a special uh, kind of control that we are not granted anymore. And this is the control verlust is a delusion. It is in the first place uh, the the dis distance between what I expect to have control and what I get control of data. And so we have to uh, fit our expectations to the situation that we are do dealing with. And so um, I think this is the first step to to find better strategies to deal with the control verlust is first to assume the control verlust. Do you see it as sort of adapting to the new game? Would that be yeah, it's, it's, it's an adaption game. You have to adapt to the new situation, but this doesn't mean to surrender. Do you, you mentioned this is your a need to change expectations, right? What, what do you think the former expectations were and what have they become? Yeah, talking about the old game is about yeah, talking about a world where, where we had walls and we had distances and uh, to uh, to distribute information you had uh, to uh, to take these problems you, you can say that the in the old world privacy was not only a right but it was default setting of the of the life yeah uh, privacy was uh, just into um, every situation you had to to do a lot of effort to bring some information to um, to someone else uh, than than the ones that you are talking with in the room you're you're in so um so so this is what uh, really changed dramatically that um now it's uh, it's the other way around you have to make a lot of effort not to distribute an information all over the world yeah, and uh, this is what we we have to deal with now. You you mentioned that you were thinking about this before the Snowden revelations. But yeah. What is it that changed your thinking for after them? What exactly shifted? Um, uh, it just uh, for me it just shifted the scale of um, the control verlust. Uh, first, um, I uh, assumed that these control verlust phenomenons were just some local phenomena that uh, we all take part of uh, sometimes but with the snowden revelations i realized that everybody is affected and that nobody could ever tell that he is in control of his data we have this um, this uh, special term for privacy in germany the the, the legal term is informationelle Selbstbestimmung, informational self-determination. And uh, this basically means that we are in control about data, who knows what about us. And this is um, kind of the this, this setting that we have a right to. And um, it was a quite interesting observation that nobody is uh, in control anymore about the, the data that we used. And w what I also uh, saw is that the NSA itself is not in control about their data anymore. And this is uh, interesting too, but I wasn't so surprised about that. The Digital Tailspin asserts that the loss of control is caused by three primary sources or drivers. The first are sensors, 
or objects that record your image and information about you without your consent, control, and often without your knowledge. This means everything from CCTV cameras, walking through the background of someone's picture, the GPS in your phone that may be transmitting to the apps you're using. The second driver is one of the essential ways that we understand digital space, which is that it's a world of copies. Information is not handed off or moved to different locations, but rather copied there, leaving with each transmission of any given piece of data yet another copy of it. The third driver is the increasingly massive storage capacities that we have to store all of this information and data that's been gathered. So to discuss this more, here's Michael talking about these drivers. I, I like to talk about things that drive the events um, of the control verlust. And I identified three different uh, drivers. The first one is um, that uh, sensors uh, like cameras um, all over the place, smartphones and uh, Internet of Things and, and so on. So, so we uh, put a lot of sensors all over the world and uh, we digitalize the world with these sensors. The second driver is the dramatically increased capacities of storage and uh, data distribution networks and all this technology which is used to copy things. Um, we, uh, we don't uh, have the right conception about uh, how things work in the internet because everything we do in the internet is basically a copy. We, we copy files all the way whenever we send an email or, or surf on a website or, or, or do anything else. We, we basically make copies all over the internet and, and uh, these copies are distributed by really, really big capacities of data storage and, and increasing data uh, storage. And this force is uh, also uh, powered by Moore's law, this, um, uh, the law uh, of the accelerated powers of computer chips, which Gordon Moore, one of the founders of Intel, stated uh, in the 60s, I think. Um, this would be the second uh, driver of the control verlust, and um, then there's this third driver of the control verlust, and this is what we do with all the data. We have gathered all the data, we have digitalized the world, and we can copy all the data through the internet, but it is about making sense of all the data. And there is also a lot of uh, things changing about analyzing data and um, analytic me methods like big data and uh, machine learning algorithms and so on um, that really changes the way we, we, we define knowledge in a, in a very yeah, radical sense. So these are the three drivers. Uh, the first is that we digitalize our world. The second is that we are capable to distribute data very big amounts of data very fast, and, uh, and the third is uh, that we can uh, make sense of all this data with uh, new uh, data analytic technologies. With our massive capacity of information storage, the role of the algorithm and the way that we access this information becomes one of the most important parts. No longer are we deciding what is important to keep and what should be disregarded, but instead we keep everything and allow the individual searching for that information to play a more important role. Michael discusses what he calls the right of the other, or the essential role of the people asking the questions, and the right to be able to find relevant information. We discussed what it means to form a query, and how this is changing the way that we understand what knowledge is. Uh, rule three, knowing is asking the right question. Um, the basic idea is that in the old game, a knowledge was defined by the technology and the people 
who gather data and spread data like the senders and um, the editors and gatekeepers and so on. Um, in our new game, it is not defined by the ones who gather data, but who query data, who, who make sense of the data. Data gathers itself. We live in a world where data basically gathers itself. It's just a byproduct of everything we do. So data is there. And the, the basic thing that changed is that uh, knowledge is now defined by the query, the, the ones who uh, find the right question to connect and to, to connect all the data points to something that makes sense. And this is also tr this is true for big data and uh, all the data tech uh, technologies that we see. This is about, but it's also true for ourselves that we use some of these technologies like Google or uh, whenever we Google something, we define what knowledge is by formulating a query or by being on so those platforms like Twitter or Facebook where we define our query through followings or friendships that we do and that define what we get to see about the world in our timelines and um, our our timelines and so on. So, so the query seems to be the very central definition of what knowledge means in our time. And um, this is, uh, yeah, one very important rule. This uh, also I goes think. back to, you have rule five, where you're talking about the query in social communications and the structure going from a centralized structure to a decentralized yeah, yeah, yeah. one. I wonder if you yeah. could you could expand a little bit more on the information ethics within that and what needs to change. Yeah, so uh, when we uh, redefine this, that knowledge is the right question, then uh, the people who make the query have the right to access data uh, for their query. And there we are uh, back to the right to be forgotten thing that when in, in the old game, when you when you gather data for a special purpose, then you kind of anticipate the query that will come to this data and to make sense of this data because you have limited resources to store data and so you have to decide which data is uh, useful and which data is not so valuable. So you store the one data and, and uh, delete the other or something. And this is not what works anymore because uh, we have all this data storage and we have all the capacities um, and data storage is not the problem anymore. But to find the right query is, is uh, the, the big problem. And when you have this in mind, you, you don't have the right to decide what to gather and what to, 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 to store, which, which data to store anymore. You don't have this right anymore because uh, the decision is not yours anymore. The decision is the decision of the one who formulates the query. And this is what I call the right of the other. The other is always the one with the query, and you never know which query he comes with and uh, which query he will formulate. Because when you when you try to anticipate that, you you will be wrong in the first place. The work that we've been discussing here was originally part of a larger book 
which has been translated from German. So if you're interested and able to read German, you can find some information about that by visiting Michael's website or following the link at Pod Academy. Michael Zeman is a cultural theorist based in Berlin, and you can find him online at mspro.de. The majority of Michael's work is in his native German, so if you're like me and unable to read the language, you may have some trouble accessing much of his work. However, the digital tailspin is available translated into English, and again, you can find that at the Institute of Networked Cultures. A link is also available at the Pod Academy website. This has been Pod Academy, and I'm Adrian Lilly. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.